Good morning, Bethany. My name is Pam Thompson, and I am the newest member um, to the scripture reading team. So um, I'll give you a moment, but if you would turn with me to Matthew 13, verses, beginning at verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and actually becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of all of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. As I said, I'm David Buving, and I am filling in for Pastor Jeff this morning. How many of you have had an experience where things just didn't quite live up to your expectations? Yeah, <laughs> the rest of you maybe not telling the truth, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> 
something like uh, Pastor Jeff's experience when he came over to our house and he had that delicious Dutch candy that he did not appreciate. And I'll have to admit, I didn't give him much warning, and I did enjoy watching him attempt to be polite and then realize there was just no choking it down. (laughs) But I want to be clear, it's not a prank candy. I can truly say this is by far my favorite candy. It's just an acquired taste. Oh, we had a similar experience with our middle schoolers last summer. I, I gave them all the opportunity to try some doubles out. And uh, they tried it, and then it was fun to watch as they, you know, ran in different directions looking for bushes to spit it into. Or some of them just spit it into the middle of the circle for everybody to stare at. So <laughs> I guess it just didn't quite live up to the expectations of what they thought candy should be. Um, a few years back, a friend of mine found this website that uh, was promising incredibly low prices. Um, They were based in China, and so the claim was that you could buy the things that were made in China, but without the cost of the American middleman. So, brilliant idea. As a result, you could buy things for only a fraction of the cost. Instead of going to Fred Meyer and buying a shirt for $20 that was made in China, you could just order something very similar on this website for $5. Seemed like a brilliant premise as long as you could, you know, wait for the slow shipping. And so he went and he searched for a while. He found this knife that he really wanted and he ordered this knife. It was a knife that was going to attach directly onto the straps of his hunting backpack. And so, you know, quick access seemed like a, a handy idea. And the day that the knife arrived, you know, it's real exciting. He opens it up, and you can imagine his surprise as he pulls out the knife, and it's this big. <laughs> it, it really created a lot of fun for the rest of his friends as we made fun of him. Uh, the knife looked nothing like what the knife was in the picture. It was nothing like what he expected, what he wanted, or what he thought he needed. For the Jewish people in Jesus' day, they were longing for the kingdom. But when Jesus steps onto the scene, the kingdom that he brought was nothing like many of them were expecting or wanting. And in order to understand the idea of the kingdom, you have to rewind a little bit and understand the scene on which Jesus walked. Jesus' ministry begins, it's been over 900 years since the great King David has ruled in Jerusalem. And it's been well over 500 years since there's been any king in Israel or Judah. They've experienced years of oppression as first they have these horrible kings of their own who treat them badly with a good one mixed in here or there. And then after that, finally, for the last 500 years or so, they've been under the oppressive rule of other nations, some of which were just horrible in the way that they treated them. It had been a long time since they'd truly experienced freedom as a people. And so they waited, longing for the Messiah, the anointed king, to come. All through the prophets, God promises this one who would come in the line of David to restore the kingdom. A king was coming, and from their perspective, it couldn't come soon enough. Then Jesus enters the scene. And and there's some initial excitement as as people rally around him. There's something about him that draws people to him. 
But then ultimately, they see he's not interested in overthrowing Rome, and he dies, and it's really a lot of disappointment for many of them. You see, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they were convinced that the problem was out there. In their mind, the only thing necessary for the world to be great again was for God to come and deal with the other people. Judge the nations, restore Israel. It's the nations around them, the nations that were controlling them that were the problem. Assyria was the problem, and then Babylon was the problem, then Persia was the problem, then Greece was a major problem, and now, as Jesus on the scene, Rome is the problem. And if God would simply step in through his anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and restore their freedom, everything would be okay. Like so many of us, they were convinced that the problem was with the other. And Jesus steps onto the scene and says, ultimately, the biggest problem, the primary problem is not with them, but it's inside of you. Jesus comes onto the scene and shows that his kingdom has arrived, but its first purpose is to defeat the devil and to restore peace between humans and God through his own suffering. As we speak of the kingdom, we get a clear picture that the kingdom is one of ultimate worth. And it's a kingdom also that was established upon Jesus' arrival, but also will come in power at a later time. It is the, the kingdom of ultimate worth that is here now and yet to come. I'm excited to be able to continue Jeff's series in the gospel this morning. Uh, he's been preaching on that for the last five weeks, and it has been great. As we talk about the kingdom, we're staying in the theme of the gospel. So I hope you got your outlines on your way in. Uh, let's dive in as we look at three important details of the kingdom. The first is this. The kingdom of heaven was initiated by the coming of the king. It's impossible to talk about the kingdom without talking about the king. And, and just a chapter back where we read, from where we read this morning in Matthew 12, Jesus is arguing with some Pharisees and religious leaders. They're accusing him that he uh, is casting out demons through the power of the devil. So you can even see in this, they understand that he is doing supernatural, unexplainable things. They're... they're challenge to him isn't just to dismiss him, but to try to apply his power from a different place. Jesus says that obviously that's ridiculous, but then he says this. In Matthew 12, 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Through the king, God's power is being manifested on the earth. And so, he tells them, if the king is here, then so is the kingdom. Or to look at it in the words of one of the parables from this morning, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, these are synonymous ideas that different authors in the New Testament use. The kingdom of heaven starts much the same as a mustard seed. 
This incredibly small seed that when planted and it grows, ultimately produces an incredibly large plant. The kingdom of heaven has been initiated by the coming of the king. The kingdom is here right now. And the kingdom is going to continue to expand as people are brought into that kingdom. So then, what specifically is the kingdom of God, and how does it differ from the fact that God is sovereign over all creation? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is God's redemptive reign in Jesus. The kingdom is God's redemptive reign in Jesus. When we speak about the kingdom, we're not talking about God's sovereignty over all of creation. Um, it is true that God is the king of creation, that he is sovereign and ruling over all of creation. But when the Bible, and especially the New Testament, uh, deals with this idea of the kingdom, it's talking about God's reign among his own people through Jesus. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom this morning. The parable of the wheat and the weeds makes this pretty clear. If the field is the earth and the wheat are the sons of the kingdom, then we can see the kingdom is not centralized in one location, but rather it's found wherever the subjects of the kingdom are found. And while the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and destroy all evil and establish a central kingdom in Israel, Jesus makes it clear this isn't his plan yet. Rather, the kingdom would spread throughout the world wherever the subjects of the kingdom are found. The kingdom is God's redemptive reign in Jesus. It's so important that we grasp this. God's kingdom is not associated with a specific nation, but rather it's, been, it's made up of all those who submit to him as king. Sometimes we've had a temptation to confuse that. Sometimes we've had a temptation to see certain countries, certain places as, as special of God's choosing or kind of like his kingdom, right? But Jesus is clear. His kingdom is not a national kingdom, but it's a kingdom that is anywhere where his subjects are found. His kingdom is found in North America and South America. It's found in Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's found in Australia, and believe it or not, it's even found in Antarctica. I had to do a little research as I was preparing for this message, but there are, in fact, a couple of churches, uh, not even just one. There's a couple of churches in Antarctica. The reality is that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, transcends all earthly kingdoms. Colossians 1 tells us this. He has delivered us, those who are followers of Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Membership in the kingdom of God is based solely upon our redemption status. Therefore, it's clear the kingdom of God is a present reality of which you and I are a part if we are followers of Jesus, if we have trusted in him alone for our salvation. To, to put it in the words of how Jeff was talking a few weeks ago on the fall, if all of humanity is in rebellion against God, then the kingdom can be understood as God's reign over the rebels who have given up their rebellion. 
kingdom encompasses all who are redeemed by the king. And naturally, it would be hard to talk about any kingdom without talking about the king specifically, but here it's even more difficult because the reality is without the king and what the king has done, there would be no subjects in the kingdom. Our sin nature naturally excludes us from the kingdom, but the king is inviting us back in. So that explains the present reality or the existence of the kingdom, but what does it look like in our world? The kingdom is seen in the work of Jesus and his bride. So the way that we see the kingdom is through the work of Jesus and his bride. As Jesus cares for the poor, restores relationships, as he heals the sick and gives sight to the blind, he is making his kingdom visible on the earth as a a foretaste of what his future ultimate kingdom will be. The kingdom is here now, and it's seen in the work of Jesus and his bride. The parable of the mustard seed, he says, and he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown, it was larger than all the garden plants and became a tree so that the birds of the air could come and make nests in its branches. Jesus initiated the kingdom on his coming. He invited people into the kingdom. He showed the power of the kingdom as he cared for the least of these. And as Jesus continues to expand his kingdom even now, he uses the church to do his work. The church is where the kingdom is made visible. A a movement that started with 12 really skittish men (laughs) has taken the entire world by storm. And even as we talk about the the global nature of the kingdom, uh, it just came to my mind that even as we've seen maybe church attendance declining in America, in in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, church attendance has been taking off, skyrocketing. The kingdom is still expanding even now. And as the people of God live by the Spirit, we see the kingdom of God on earth. As people of the kingdom use their spiritual gifts according to the faith that they've received, we see the kingdom of God. At its core, we see the kingdom right now through the body of Christ, acting like their king, engaging the world with love and compassion as they proclaim the message of the king. And and while we can very much see the kingdom right now, if we focus on those things, we can rejoice to know that even more is yet to come. Our second point here is that the kingdom of heaven will be fully realized in the return of the king. While Jesus initiated or inaugurated his kingdom on his first coming, we know that at his second coming, the kingdom will take on a new, fuller shape. The parable of the wheat and the weeds, again, makes this really clear. His kingdom, while it's established already and growing, awaits a future day when it will be realized. In verse 39, he says, The kingdom, or sorry, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says here, a day is coming when the rebellion will be finally and completely crushed. And the kingdom will become our only reality. Or to put it in the words of the angel from the book of Revelation, he says this, the kingdom of the world, this is speaking at Jesus' second coming, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, amen. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> Jesus doesn't mince words here in this parable. Everything that causes sin, anything that stands against the king and his words will face destruction. And, and this is a hard truth, but also a beautiful truth. The, the, his words are strong here. He doesn't sugarcoat it. When we understand what sin does in our world, then we understand that Jesus here is promising a world, a reality, the only thing we will know will be this kingdom, a kingdom that's free from all sorrow, struggle, pain, suffering, and sadness. He is a king who will purify his kingdom. He will purify his kingdom. He will not let anything stand in the way. And so for those who have accepted his rule, he himself purifies them by his own suffering. But for those who reject his rule, they are cast out of his kingdom and will suffer for the evil and the pride that they have embraced and promoted. And as he purifies his kingdom, he will restore those of us who are purified by his blood to the glory that he had originally given them. Jesus says here in verse 43 that they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, fully restored in glory and in relationship. Shining. It's it's this picture of us reflecting God's glory to everything around us. being what we were originally intended to be as priests of our God, as pure and perfect representatives of him. Listen to the description here that John gives of the world in which Jesus is the only king and rebels have found their end. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he, God himself, will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I want to encourage you, if you didn't have a chance to listen to Jeff's sermon two weeks ago on the gospel and restoration, I'm not going to re-preach all through that. That's, that is speaking of this future kingdom that's going to come. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's really good. We are living already in the kingdom as followers of Jesus, but we long for the kingdom that is not yet here also. I, I long for the day when all the pain and the struggle has been done away with, and I am able to dwell with my God. And that attitude, Jesus says here, is right attitude to have. The last two parables in this section proclaim to us our last point. The kingdom of heaven is worth losing everything to gain. There's absolutely nothing that can compare to the riches of the kingdom. Parables have a way of either confusing us or making things really make sense. These two last parables, that they go beyond just head knowledge to helping us see how beautiful the kingdom is. That it's right for us to long for it. And that nothing should stand in the way of us embracing that kingdom. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. But in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When we understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, when we actually grasp it, we will realize that nothing can compare in its value. And the reality is this. When we look to to politicians, uh, political parties, our nation, our friends, ourselves, our spouse, any of those things to solve our big life problems, it isn't that we're being too hopeful. It's just that we're looking at the wrong things. All of us have a gospel story that we've bought into. Maybe for you, I hope for you, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of other gospels out there as well. And what I mean by that is that we all have these grand narratives that we tell about our life. We all have to answer these questions. And if our questions don't line up with what the Bible is, it's time for us to do some adjusting. So let's look at them. Where did I come from? Or this might be expanded to say, what is my identity, my source of worth and purpose? Here are a few things we're tempted by, I know. Maybe for you, your identity or your source of worth comes from your work or your ability to do whatever, whatever it is that you're able to do. Maybe it comes from romantic relationships your nationality, your, your family of origin. And then we have to ask, what's your false story? What is it that, 
defines what went wrong in your world that needs to be fixed. Maybe it's the failure to live up to someone else's standards. Or even maybe the failure to live up to your own standards. You want more than anything to be seen as respectable, and yet you've failed. Or maybe for like the Jews in Jesus' day, it's your national identities being challenged. Maybe it's a lack of money or a lack of comfort. And then here's where the functional saviors step in. Who or what will make my world right again? Who's my savior? What does restoration for you look like? Maybe it's getting your act together so that you can uh, look impressive to others or maybe just at the very least not feel judged by others. Maybe it's if you can get that right job so that you can make enough money. Maybe it's buying the right house or car so you can finally be content. Maybe for you it's about a particular politician being in office or the very opposite about that, a particular politician not being in office. If either of those things can happen, hope is restored. And then lastly, as we look at this last question, what does ultimate transformation and hope look like? What, how can I be made right? What does it look like for transformation to happen from this fallen state to a state of ultimate hope? Is it a big house, nice car, maybe a perfect Instagram or Facebook feed where people can see just how happy you are. <laughs> perfect children or marriage. America getting back to the good old days, or if you're on the other side of the aisle, America finally moving forward, right? We all have gospel narratives. And we have to wrestle with where our ultimate hope is. Because the reality is, citizenship in Jesus' kingdom is not subjective. The kingdom of heaven isn't made up of good people. Jesus lays this out in the parable of the wheat or the weeds. Um, I like to think of myself as a gardener. I enjoy planting. I don't enjoy weeding, and I forget to water. So, uh, plus camps. Camps mess with everything. So, you know, we get our garden planted. It looks really nice right now. And then all of a sudden, by midsummer, things are falling apart because I haven't watered in weeks. And uh, so, so... I'm not the best gardener, but I am confident that weeds cannot transform themselves into wheat. The shows that we put on, the way that we make ourselves look around other people, that does not make you a part of the kingdom of heaven. Honestly, citizenship isn't even because you say you're a Christian. You can't will yourself to being a citizen. Only the king can give you citizenship. Citizenship isn't subjective. It's something that is found through Jesus alone. And I'm going to use Colossians 1 again because it says it so clearly. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Who has done it? Who did it? Jesus did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we didn't do it. He did it in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. He did it. And then the second half of that statement is that citizenship is not earned. Here's the reality. These gospel stories that we are telling ourselves, they're killing us. You weren't meant to be your own savior. Your spouse can certainly not handle the weight of trying to be your savior. Politicians make terrible saviors. Jesus is the only one. He's the only one able to save you. He's the only one worthy of turning to. If you are tired this morning, if you are worn out from trying desperately to establish your kingdom, to make your world right, I want to invite you to lay it down. Stop fighting so desperately to get your life together. Stop attacking anyone and anything that stands in the way of your kingdom and just pause for a minute. Stop trying to win the fight. Stop trying to establish your own kingdom. You can't make this world right. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's not on us. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's paradoxical. We crave control because we think if we can control our situation, then we will finally be happy. But it simply doesn't work. I mean, it might work for a while, but it's going to fall apart at some point. My favorite song right now is a song by Josh Garrels called At the Table. I wanted to read a few of the lyrics. He speaks uh, poetically about this idea of responding to the gospel. He says this, Wondering where I might begin, I hear a voice upon the wind, singing faint but singing true, Son, there ain't nothing you can do. But listen close and follow me. I'll take you where you're meant to be. Just don't lose faith. So I put my hand upon the plow and wipe the sweat up from my brow. I plant the good seed along the way as I look forward to the day when at last I'll see my father run to me, singing, oh, my child, come on home, home to me. And I will hold you in my arms and joyful be. There will always be, always be a place for you at my table. Return to me, my child. There is an invitation here for every one of us this morning. An invitation to stop striving and surrender to the one true king. The one who offers you joy, peace, goodness, and purpose in exchange for your filthiness. He doesn't ask you to get your life together and to figure it all out and then he'll make it even better. He asks you to just give it up. Give it to him. And maybe this morning you recognize that you have never truly surrendered to the king. I want to encourage you, don't wait a moment longer. The king is inviting you in. He's inviting you to lay down your demands and to surrender to him. For others of you, you may be confident you are part of the kingdom, and, and that's wonderful. 
but you also recognize you've been struggling to trust the king in some area of your life. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are angry or exhausted this morning, I want to invite you to come and lay it down before the king. As we close, we're going to take a moment of silence as the worship team comes forward. And if you've never surrendered to the king, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that in this moment. Simply tell him that you realize you have been fighting a battle you cannot win and admit that you have failed and ask him for, your, for his forgiveness. The, the reality is that uh, we all need that. So don't let the devil tell you that it's embarrassing in this moment to realize maybe, maybe I do need him. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to turn to the king. And, and if you have that opportunity this morning, I, I'd ask you to find someone. Tell someone. Tell me. You came with someone else. Tell them. I, I guarantee you they will be ecstatic. Even if you think that they think that you're already part of the kingdom, they'll still be really happy. I am convinced. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. And for the rest of you, I, I want to encourage you in this, as we take this moment of silence, reflect on those things. What, what areas of my life have I not trusted into the king's hands? In what ways am I fighting to establish my kingdom rather than being a subject in his kingdom? And then confess those to him. Turn them over to him. You don't have to get your act together. Talk to him. Let him know what's going on. Don't let anything stand in the way this morning of gaining the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment of silence just as we reflect on that. Father, help us to be a people here at Bethany Church who are active in your kingdom. Give us the peace of the king, knowing that he is the one who fights for us. He is the one who accomplishes our salvation. It is in him that we trust and in him alone. And help us to lay down our other things. Lay down our idols and trust solely in Jesus. Through that, God, you would give us a peace that transcends our understanding, a peace that looks radical in a world that is filled with anger.